We will be finishing up uh, Haggai chapter 2, and then next week we'll be back in Ezra again as we try to finish out the book of Ezra this summer. Let's pray. And now, Lord God, we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds, help us to see, help us to understand, help us to hear your voice. And Lord, help us to act accordingly. Help us to understand what you want us to do or what you want us to change or where you want us to be steadfast and just hold on. We ask for your help, your guidance, your strength especially in your understanding as we study today. In your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I'm sure we've all seen uh, images or pictures or movies or TV shows that show a surgeon scrubbing up and getting into the sterile gown and everything else and getting the gloves on. And he's totally sterile as he goes into that surgery in order to be able to operate and not cause any damage to the patient because of germs. But if he bumps into something or touches something that's not sterile, what does that mean? Is he still sterile? No. No, he starts all over. And they go back and they start the whole process from the very beginning to get to that point. Now, Haggai uses something very similar to that as an illustration that we're going to see. Now, just to kind of remind us of where we've been and in Haggai, let's look at this first uh, slide. Now, these are the, the dates that are mentioned in your translation. It may say something like, on the 21st day of the seventh month of, that all works out to August 29th, according to the, to the people that have done the research on these things. So, August 29th in that year, Hosea called them to start to rebuild the temple. Now, remember, there had been a pause of 16 years. They come, that was the purpose, set up the altar, build the temple, restore worship of God in Israel. That was the whole point. And they got the altar built, and they laid the foundation, they dedicated it, and 16 years went by. Haggai comes along and says, hey, why are you working on your houses when the house of God is not done yet? They'd had a real shift in their focus. They were all excited about God and all excited about pursuing Him until such time as there was a little bit of oppression, persecution, and then they drifted off and did other things. So the 21st of September is when they started to rebuild the temple. Now Haggai 2, we're going to look at that today. October 17th, there's a call to be strong, get on with the work because God is with them. Then December 18th, Sin and disobedience stained and defiled wherever they offer. And so again, they're talking about this second section seems to still be talking about what was happening before they started to rebuild. And so just kind of keep those things in mind. It seems a little bit convoluted. There's also some prophetic things that are in the future as well. And then in the, the, the second message, December 18th, Zerubbabel is, is explained to him that God has chosen him. And we'll talk about what that means. So, verse 1, chapter 2, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came. And that's the start of that whole prophecy to the prophet Haggai. And he, God said, go speak to the, go speak to the governor who was Zerubbabel and go speak to the high priest. And, and then he said, verse 3, ask them who 
of you is left that saw this house in its former glory. Now, that would be Solomon's temple, okay, which had been destroyed. If you look back through the calendar, the people who read these things and understand them and calculate them say it was 65, 67 years to this time was when the temple was destroyed. So it's possible that there were some people there who had lived through the destruction of the temple and all of that time frame interesting. They would have had to have been very young. But he said, who remembers? And, and the, what is, what they were supposed to be seeing is the splendor and the o- o grandeur of what Solomon built. I mean, it was incredible. So anyway, he says, who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? And this is, a, again, an artist's depiction of the temple they're building. Now, this isn't anywhere near as fancy. It doesn't have all the bells and whistles. It, it, it is nothing like Solomon's temple, other than the structure inside is basically the same. You have the Holy of Holies. You have the holy place. Outside, you have the altar. And so he's saying to the people, <clears throat> doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like nothing. And then verse four. But now, be strong, Zerubbabel. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people, and work. Why? For I am with you. I am with you. And um, I just love the fact that God speaks very specifically to these folks as they're getting ready to rebuild as they're supposed to. And then in verse 5 it says, This is what I covenanted, or this is what I promised you. My spirit remains among you. Do not fear. People are trying to stop you. They're sending letters back to Persia. They're trying to make sure that you can no longer pursue, pursue these things. Don't worry about them. Follow God. Do what you're supposed to do. Do not fear. Now, there's an implication here. What was God actually looking for? Was he looking for a fancy temple? Was he looking for gold and silver and all this kind of stuff? Um, <clears throat> you know, is that really what he wanted? You know, this is what it was asked for. It was done, and and I think it impressed upon the people certain things. But God at this point in time isn't saying, I want all of the stuff that was there before. Why was he asking them to rebuild the temple? I think one of the biggest reasons was to show that they were putting God first. For 16 years, they'd been putting everything else first. Anything that could come along had precedent. And now God is saying, Be strong and work, for I am with you. I promised I'd be with you when you left Egypt, and I am still with you all these years later. So don't be afraid. My spirit is with you. Be strong. And I just love the way God comes along and says, okay, now is the time. Let's move forward. Now, look at Isaiah 30, 15, but I want to give the background here to it. At this point in Israel's history, Isaiah, um, <clears throat> Judah is sending people to Egypt to try to get Egypt to, to come and help them against their enemies. They're putting all their faith and trust in Egypt. Okay, That's what's going on in the verses previous to this. So then Isaiah 35.15 comes along and it says this, This is what the Sovereign Lord the Holy One of Israel says, in repentance and rest is your salvation. Not salvation spiritually, 
the salvation from the armies that are coming after them. So in repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. And then this next phrase, but you would have none of it. How sad. This, this is, the, this is the, the nation of God. Uh, they have the temple and the priests at this time in history. And, and, and here, they, here they're saying, you know, oh, wow, we got this enemy coming. Let's get Egypt to help us. What about God? Isn't that where you're supposed to go? And so the verse is in repentance and turning back to God and seeking Him instead of Egypt and rest, trusting God and quietness. Stop talking and then trust, confidence, dependence. In other words, this is what God wants you to do. This is what He wants. This is when He'll save you. Not when you're trying to finagle and work things out on your own. So whether you're a student facing a new semester, an employee with a new job, how do we make it through? How do we go from there? By working harder, staying up longer, stressing more? Well, sometimes you have to do some of that. But sometimes I think we need to do the whole idea that's kind of expressed here. Go back to God and say, God, I, I can't do this. This is hard. They're asking things of me that are very, very difficult. And, and I want to do them, and I want to do them well to honor you, but I need your help for this. I need your power and your ability to work through me. I cannot make it alone. God, help. So many times we get into situations where we're trying to do something and we're forgetting that really maybe we need the help that God can offer us, but we haven't even bothered to ask. And that's the people of Israel. That's what he's describing here. And so this chapter 2 kind of goes back and forth from, okay, now you're starting again, that's awesome, and God is with you, but also reminding them, don't go back to where you were trying to do it on your own. Don't go back to, like, the earlier Israel that tried to buy Egypt's help. As believers in the Lord Jesus, we do not have to fear. Do we get scared and fearful? Sure. But we also need in those times remember we can focus our thoughts, our hearts, and our longings on the Lord Himself. Let's move on to verse 6. Now in this section here, um, there's some prophetic things that are going on. I'll try to share with you in just a second. But uh, in verse 6 he says, in a little while... Now remember, when he says in a little while, he's not necessarily referring to the day after tomorrow. In this case, it's a prophetic in a little while, and it means when God's ready. That's what the in a little while here means. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens. And so you get the sense there that God is referring to something. Um, He says in verse 7, I will shake the nations. And, And then he says the desired of nations, which is what the NIV says, or... And that would have been the Messiah. The others say, I will shake the nations so that the treasures of the nations will come or be brought to the, to the temple. And so, critical part, I will shake the nations and I will fill this house with glory. And then he, Mercedes goes on. He says, all this, 
All the riches of the world are mine anyway. Kind of statement that God is making. And then verse 9. The glory of this present house. Okay? The temple that they're currently building. So the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, Solomon's temple. Okay? So God is saying here something kind of interesting and important. The glory of this house, which seems a lot less, and seems like it has nothing compared to the old one, the glory of this house is going to be way better than the glory of Solomon's house. And it is in this place I will grant peace. God's peace will spread throughout the world. And so at that point we realize we're not just talking about right here and right now. Because in this, in verse 7, we have a partial fulfillment of that in Luke 2. Luke 2, Simeon took him, Jesus, in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, you have promised, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. Why? For my eyes have seen your salvation. I'm holding the Messiah. My eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And so you've got this taking place, and it's a partial kind of a fulfillment that takes place at that point. The temple was truly filled with the glory of God in a special way. The Messiah was there. Jesus had come. And and it was the beginning of God's final steps that He was going to take in finishing all things. And then you've got the final fulfillment of these verses in Revelation 21-22. This is now talking about the new heaven and the new earth. So the very last verses before Revelation ends. And what does he say? John says, I did not see a temple in the new, new Jerusalem. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And when you think about that, you start to think, okay, so it's not about the building. It's about who? It's about Christ. It's about God. And so the wonder of prophecy is that God has never given a prophecy that has not been fulfilled. Now, it may not come. It might not yet be here. But you never had a prophecy fail. And so, again, this section just kind of helps the people see, okay, there's more going on than right what you see right here. Then let's go on to verse 10. Um, 10 and 11, there's a new message to Haggai to ask the priest. So um, on the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. So the word of the Lord comes again. And now we have that same discussion. He 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 says, go ask the priest a bunch of questions. And so we're talking about being defiled. Uh, being um, unpure, ritually unpure, or, or uh, unclean, and and he said, if if someone is ritually clean and they touch something that's defiled, does the thing that's defiled get changed to clean? And the answer is absolutely not. The person who touches the unclean thing is defiled, and so that's the discussion in verses 12 to 13. And then he goes on to say, 
verse 14. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do, whatever they offer, is defiled. Now, what's he talking about? He's still now going back to before they started to rebuild. In that time frame, from when they put up the altar and when they started to rebuild the walls, or the, the temple, there was a bunch of years where they were offering sacrifices and all kinds of things on that altar. And what God is saying is, yeah, you were going through the motions, you were doing all of that stuff, but it wasn't for me. It wasn't for me. And, and, and again, you, you think about that. This people, this nation, they're defiled because they've, they've left aside the things of God. They've gone to do other things, the things that, that they want to do instead of doing what they promised to do when they came. And so here you've got this whole situation going and Haggai again is reminding them, you're starting on the wall now. You're starting on the temple. I'm sorry. You're starting on the temple. So now don't, don't get lazy. Don't slack off. Don't say, okay, we got part of it done. Now we can rest for another 16 years. No. Focus your hearts and your minds and your souls on what God has asked you to do. Ask Him for the strength and do it. That's what the whole second chapter of Haggai is all about. Um, implication. Before they started to rebuild the temple again, all of the sacrifices we just mentioned were tainted because of their disobedience. So they were doing the morning and evening sacrifice, but they were just throwing the sacrifices out there and doing it because, well, yeah, you're supposed to do that. They weren't doing it because they were worshiping God and saying, how cool is it that in the morning we can worship God in a special way through the morning sacrifice. And again, as we go to sleep, we can praise God and thank Him by offering a sacrifice. That wasn't part of the picture. It was, oh yeah, we've got the ritual to do. Let's, let's do the ritual. One of the things that struck me is, as, as I'm reading all of this and trying to piece it all together and figure out what, how is Haggai trying to communicate and what is it that he's trying to communicate, there's that whole sense of focus on God. Don't go back into patterns of sin. And, and then there's that constant challenge. Uh, you, you need to be focused on what God wants you to do. Let's build a wall. Let's get our lives on, in, in line with what God wants. I mentioned this uh, statement last week. I'm going to share it again. Today's decisions determine who you will be tomorrow. Um, long-term things I'm doing now lay the groundwork for things further down the road. Um, and this applies to all parts of life. If we teach our kids that it's a good thing to save, and it's a good thing to give to the Lord. And we start there very young. We build that practice into their lives. That really reaps rewards down the line. Um, people who think that, that none of these things matter or that it really doesn't matter what you do. And, and um, that you just do what you like and it's okay. God will forgive you even if you do, do some sin. You start to think, what's going on in that thinking? Something's wrong there. And if a person lives in a certain way long enough, that thing can become a real pattern. The kinds of things that we do in our lives spiritually 
now will imprint, impact us down the road. And <clears throat> short term, what I do today can impact what I do tomorrow. Um, I came across this quote too one time, and I thought it was kind of insightful. There are Saturday night activities that ruin Sunday morning worship. Now I'll leave that application for you to yourself, but I remember as a teen especially, Saturday night was the only night I didn't have uh, you got to get in bed kind of statement for my parents. So because it was Saturday night, I stayed up until the TV stations went off the air, which in those days was around 1 a.m. They don't do that anymore, but they used to. You know, and, and so then I, get, I still have to get up early and go to church, and I'm sitting there barely awake. How is that helpful? What I did Saturday night didn't help me come to church in any way, shape, or form, ready to learn and to participate. So again, just one of those things that that, uh, that quote really struck me. There are things that we do or think or say that make us um, that make us unclean in a sense, and I don't mean that in the ritual sense of the Old Testament, but that give us a guilty conscience or put a heaviness on us. And until we've taken whatever that is to the Lord and confessed and allowed Him to restore us, like First John one nine says, we're still stuck under that under that heaviness. The good news is that that can change. The good news is God has already forgiven us at the cross, but now it's the fellowship that has to be restored. And that's by confessing that sin to God and having Him restore us. So we confess and we get right and we come into God's presence with joy and celebration. Let's go on to verse 15. Now give careful thought to this from this day on. Consider how things were before the stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. So remember what it was like before you started to rebuild. Um, you know, and then he describes some harsh times. You would go out and try to get some, some grain and it would be half of what you expected. And, and everything was way less in, in what they were expecting to get in the crops. Verse 17 tells us why. God says, I struck the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail. So he's saying, listen, this is an agricultural society. All of you depend on the rain, and all of you depend on the sun. And he says, I struck you with blight, something that would attack, and and, and like mildew, very similarly, take crops that are stored and begin to destroy them from within. And then hail, which destroys plants ahead of time, and they aren't able to harvest. And so he said, I struck you with these things. Now remember, this is before they started to rebuild the temple again. God's been trying for 16 years to get their attention. He says, remember, I struck you with these things, and yet you did not turn to me. You know, again, these people should have known at this point that, you know, this is God. God is the one that rules over all of creation and nature and, and he brings the times and the seasons and, and if we're struggling with these things and we're having hail why don't we go to him why don't we pray 
And that's what God's saying. Why, why didn't you? Now, back to present time, and he says, from this day on, from the 24th day of the ninth month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Think about it. Remember that day when you laid the foundation and you celebrated. And then he goes on to say, and I think the implication there is <clears throat> that it's time to keep going, keep building. Um, this, in verse 19, he says, Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Is there anything left? And I, I think the implication here is, any seed left that you can plant? I think that's what he's saying here. Otherwise, what seed is left there is going to disappear. So, is there any seed left in the barn? And, and then until now, he said, there's some crops that haven't come to fruition yet. The vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. So I've been blighting you and giving you hail and giving you mildew. That's going to stop right now because you've turned back to me and you've started to build the wall. So he says, from this day on, I will bless you. So get the seed out, sow it, maybe we get a quick crop, but make sure you go out there and take care of all the other crops that you've got going because from this point on, you will have God's blessing. Now, the harvest is still months away, but Lord has promised an abundant harvest if, in fact, will come. So the work on the temple has been started again, and that gives evidence that they are indeed refocusing their hearts on what's important, on God himself. They're rebuilding because they're saying, this has to be done. We have to finish this temple for the Lord. Now, implication here. In the Old Testament law, there were extensive lists of blessings or cursings that were tied directly to the nation of Israel's obedience. You obey me, do the things I ask you to do, and I will bless you in ways you can't even imagine. You disobey me and don't do the things that I've asked of you, and the curses I bring upon you will be a nightmare. It was very, very cut and dried. God said, do this, this is what happens. Do this, and this is what happens. Why did they continually go to that other side? I, you know, there were times, big times, when they had a lot of blessing, but over and over and over, boom, back into disobedience, back into disobedience. And they took God and his blessing for granted. And even here, they come back and they started the sacrifices, they laid the foundation, and so at that point they assumed, okay, we're good with God, let's, let's get out there and do what we want to do, fix our houses and, and uh, ignore the things that God has sent us here to do. They assumed that they were in control, that it was their actions which determined God's response. That was their thinking. We're in control if we do the right things or we do whatever... Our actions are going to determine what God does. They reduced it always to just a, a, a series of a rituals. But God is always more interested in the heart first. We need to always remember that. Even when he was asking sacrifices, God wasn't asking sacrifices because the sacrifices were this 
this amazing, wonderful thing. God was asking for sacrifices because this was one way that the people focused on Him in a very unique and special way. Every time you offered a sacrifice, there was a personal cost. You had to take a lamb, and its life had to be taken, and a sacrifice was given. And yet, how many times did they just wander away? In David's psalm of confession for sin with Bathsheba, Psalm 51 says this, He's speaking about God or to God. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O Lord, you will not despise. And so David was saying here very clearly, what I bring to God as a sacrifice is anywhere as important as my heart. I mean, I could offer a hundred sheep on the, on the sacrifice and give no thought whatsoever to the God I'm, that I serve and say that I love and I want to obey. What God longs for from us when we stumble, fall into sin is, is a no-excuse confession. Okay, so that's not like when we go to God and say, God, I'm sorry I did this, but... No, 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 that's an excuse. When we confess, it's, Lord God, I sinned. I put these things before my eyes and they shouldn't have been. Or, Lord God, I sinned. I treated this person this way. It's a simple statement of what has been done as a confession. And and it comes with a broken and contrite heart. Not with an arrogant heart that says, okay, I need to say, I, I need to say that I'm confessing. So here's, here's my confession. Now let's get on with it. That's not the case. I spoke with a young man many years ago on a mission trip in Mexico that I was leading and he shared with me that he had been into pornography since the age of seven. And he shared that with me and it just, it boggled my mind. And he said, for over 13 years. That was a very big part of his life. He, 16 years old, he became a Christian, but the struggle was still there. Eventually, he, he, he bought into some things and, and he got some help and was able to, to put this all to one side. And as he was telling me, there was this real sense of, you know, I worked really hard, I was really diligent, and I'm, I conquered this. And it just kind of scared me because my thought was, where's the brokenness? You were involved in something after you, after you came to Christ, you're still involved in something that you knew was, was sin. Where's the brokenness and the contriteness and the dependence? It was much more a sense of, I can do it. I got this. And any time we look at sin and think that we can conquer it, we're in deep trouble. That's what Colossians says, discipline and determination eventually aren't enough. They're just not enough to fight fleshly desires. So just kind of to think through in our own walk with the Lord, God delights in a broken spirit and a contrite heart. The kind of person who says, Lord God, I hate this. I hate what I just did or what I just said. I, I don't want to be this way. God, I need your help.
please give me your strength. Give me the ability. And give me the ability to depend on you. We do not want to go through the motions. Nothing comes of going through the motions. Nothing happens when we're just saying words. When we come to God, it should be with our hearts broken and contrite, seeking Him and only Him for the help that we need. Let's move on to the last three verses here. This is the last uh, little thing that, kind of a little prophecy, not prophecy, but a little vision that God gives Hosea, or a word to say. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 23rd, on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the powers of foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel. I will make you like my signet ring. I have chosen you. And so here we got just a very special message, just as Zerubbabel. And, and, and we're not exactly sure what that day is, whether it's uh, something really future or whether it was coming up still. But he says, um, I am going to make you my, my special servant. You're going to be my signet ring. And a signet ring was something, sometimes they had a seal for sealing documents, but it was especially given to a person uh, who and it showed that they had royal authority. And so he's saying to him, Zerubbabel, you are going to be my signet ring. You're going to have my royal authority. Why? Because I have chosen you. And the thought there seems to be, Zerubbabel is going to be in the line of the Messiah, and God is saying very clearly, this is you. I've chosen you. You're the one that will be the signet ring. You're the one that will be in the line of the Messiah. And then that's it. That's it. That's the end of the book of um, Haggai. So what do we take away from this? Remember, a clean and a sterile surgeon does not make something dirty clean when it touches it, right? So the, the surgeon can touch something dirty, well, that's, that's it. You know? Um, same thing in the Old Testament. If something was... was Clean, ceremonial clean, and they touched a dead body. They were no longer ceremonially unclean. They were no longer ceremonially clean. They were unclean like the dead body. Okay? So just thought that struck me as I was thinking through parts of this this week. In the same way as godliness does not rub off on others, because it's not contagious. I wish I could say, yeah, I'm just going to bring my kids in tight and, and, and they'll get my godliness. No, you have to train them and help them and encourage them so that they become godly, but you can't rub yours off on them. And by the way, you may not have enough to give anyway. So at least that would be the case for me. Anyway, here's the statement that I, that I came across. Sin and filth are contagious. And you can put anything you want in those first two words. 
But the Spirit of God living in us protects us from evil. Old Testament law made it very clear. The unclean always contaminates the clean. Uh, never the other way around. Something changed when a man Jesus was here. Matthew 8, 2 and 3. A man with leprosy, unclean, ceremonially unclean, came before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. You can heal me. I love this. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. Uh Uh-oh, Jesus is dirty, right? No. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately, he was cured of his lepers. I love that we serve that kind of God. He's willing. He could have just said the word, right? He could have said, yeah, you'd be healed. You're good. But he didn't. He reached out and touched a leper, which everybody around is going, oh, no, he's unclean now. Well, no, because by the time Jesus was finished, he's clean. So he couldn't have pegged Jesus in any way. What can make us clean? Confessing our sin and asking for the touch of Jesus in our lives. What can make us clean? Submitting to the touch of Jesus' hand in our life. Invite Him to do whatever work He needs to do in our hearts. Surrendering to our Lord's direction in our lives. To willingly go where He's leading. When Jesus touches us... We are clean. The filth is gone, and we can follow him. So what does it mean to surrender to the Lord's touch? How can we make sure that submitting to him, and that we are submitting to him in every area of our lives? How do we follow him on a path to godliness? I just really want to say, those are good questions. And the answers are different for all of us. There's no simple, okay, from point A to point B, we are all going to do this, and we'll get there. And then we're going to... That's not it. God works in us individually, because we are individuals. And the things that He takes me through are different than the things He takes Carol through, or the things He takes my children through, or my best friend. God has a different path. And it's unique and specific to each one of us. So what we're saying is that we need to get on our knees and say, okay, God, make the path clear and help me stay on it. Because you're the one with the road map. I don't know. I don't know where to go. Now, please understand, that's why it looks a little bit different. Now, nobody's journey with the Lord is the same as someone else's. It may be similar, but not the same. One of my former Bible professors had to cancel a speaking engagement in a conference so that he could be home with his wife when she was going through chemotherapy. He's a godly man. I've seen him in, as, as a great example. 
And then he, he sent this part of this letter, and I, and I read it, and I thought, man, that's perfect. This is what he said. God's ways are not, God's ways are so often not our ways. For us, the shortest and best path between two points is a straight line. God rarely sees the straight line as the best path, and he rarely is concerned that the path be the shortest. His goal, through all of the ups and downs of life, is to teach us to trust him. If in the end we get a good grade on that lesson, we receive the words, well done, you have been faithful. So God, wanting to reach his goal, leads us in a zigzag pattern such that we simply cannot figure out what is coming next. Through the zigzags, God simply says to us, I know you're confused, but trust me, I've got your back. Stay with me, trust me, and you will come out just fine. I love those words. They're powerful because it reminds me, when I look at my good friend and the ministry that he's got, and I'm and, and saying, hey, we're not, we're not the same. We're not going through the same things. That's right, you aren't, because you're different people, and God has different purposes. That's a good reason not to measure ourselves, by the way, against others or to compare ourselves with others. Anyway, just <clears throat> the heart of all of this is that a broken and contrite person who longs for God to work in their life, a person who knows godliness comes from the touch of Jesus, who longs to become more and more like Jesus no matter what it takes. And so we, we look at it, we're concerned, maybe troubled by it, but we say, okay, Lord, lead on. So may the Lord help each of us to seek his touch. May he give us his strength to follow and grow. May the Lord Jesus be honored in our lives as we become more and more like him. I think that's the message of Haggai. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for your gift of salvation. Thank you for your gift of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for all the ways that you lead and guide us through your word, by your spirit, through the words and encouragement of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you. I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters here that as we go into this week, we would be seeking to hear, seeking to follow, seeking to learn what it is that you have for us each day as we face it. Help us to remember we never face these things alone. You're always with us. We thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.